Thank you for being here again for the next episode of our Friday weekly podcast, the Class Action Weekly Wire. I'm Jennifer Riley, partner at Dwayne Morris, and joining me today is special counsel Brandon Spurlock. Thank you, Brandon, for being on the podcast. Great to be here, Jen. So today we wanted to discuss some trends and important developments in state court class action litigation, since the decision on where to file a class action will always be an important strategic decision for plaintiff's lawyers, um, especially those seeking to maximize their odds in favor of class certification, um, as well as seeking larger verdicts, settlements, um, and things of that nature, whether it is between state or federal court or deciding in which particular state to file, many, many factors impact this decision. Um, Brandon, can you tell our listeners what some of those factors are? Sure. Although almost all state law procedural requirements for class certifications, Mayor Rule 23 of the federal rules, the plaintiffs bar often, often perceive state courts as having more positive predisposition towards their clients' interests, particularly where putative, putative class members have connections to the state or when the events at issue occurred in the state where the action is filed. But beyond foreign shopping between state and federal court, the plaintiff's bar also seeks out individual states that are believed to be, quote unquote, plaintiff friendly, such as California or Georgia or Florida, Illinois, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Missouri, to name some others. These are all among the leading states where plaintiff's lawyers file a volume of class actions. These courts are thought to have more relaxed procedural rules related to discovery, consolidation and class certification, a lower bar for evidentiary standards, higher than average jury awards, uh, among other considerations. And all this incentivizes form shopping related to state class actions. In reviewing state court class action decisions and analyzing those rulings, um, it, it seems that many state courts tend to apply a very typical Rule 23-like analysis, similar to the analysis we would see in federal court. Um, although many of those decisions also focus on the underlying claims at issue um, to address whether class certification is appropriate and whether the matter should proceed on a class basis. Um, nevertheless, that said, understanding how state courts apply those respective Rule 23 analyses under the applicable state procedural laws uh, is really crucial, I think, toward effectively navigating those complexities and developing effective defense strategies in those types of lawsuits. Yeah, Jen, I think that's absolutely right. Another, another important topic for companies is state private attorney general laws, in particular California's very controversial private attorneys general act um, that we all know as PAGA. PAGA authorizes workers to file lawsuits to recover civil penalties on behalf of themselves, other employees in the state of California for state, state labor code violations. Although California is the only state to have an, enacted this type of law so far, several other states are considering their own similar private attorney general laws, including New York, Washington, Oregon, New Jersey, and Connecticut. So it'll be crucial to monitor state legislation on this topic, given the impact such laws will have on class litigation strategy. Absolutely. And we will continue to monitor those developments and get them out to both listeners of our podcast as well as readers of our blog as they occur. Um, Brandon, were there any key rulings from your perspective in specific state courts in 2022 going into 2023? 
Well, California being the epicenter of class, class actions filed in state courts, uh, it's a state that has more class action litigation than any other state. Uh, so needless to say, we got some important rulings uh, out of California. While all varieties of class-wide cases are filed in California, a high majority are consumer fraud and employment related. Even when employers' written formal policies appear facially neutral and compliant, employees may successfully seek class certification for demonstrating common issues where an employer's practices and protocols allegedly violate law. So you asked about some key cases. One, Cruz et al. v. Health. In that case, the plaintiff filed a class action against his former employer for wage and hour violations, uh, stemming uh, from defendants allegedly utilizing a time rounding policy that systematically resulted in uncompensated hours worked, uh, as well as for failing to provide the plaintiff and other hourly employees with full uninterrupted meal periods in compliance with the California Labor Code. So in this case, the, the plaintiffs also brought uh, derivative, derivative claims for inaccurate wage statements, failing to pay all wages due, and additional violations of uh, the California Business and Professional Code as well, as well as penalties under PAGA. The court granted plaintiff's motion to certify as rounding time, meal period, and de derivative claims. And in certifying the class for the rounding policy claim, the court reasoned that the plaintiff's theory of liability, right, the defendant's policy of rounding employees' time punches to the nearest quarter hour increment resulted in employees' systematic undercompensation. And at this, this presented common questions of law and fact that predominated over the individualized issues that might arise, including the calculation of damages to which each putative class member might be entitled. So with respect to the meal period claims, uh, the court agreed that while defendants formal written meal break policy may comport with California law, this fact alone did not preclude class certification. Uh, the plaintiffs presented evidence of numerous meal break violations, uh, including missed, short and late employee breaks, which the court found sufficient to establish a rebuttable presumption that defendant had a de facto policy that failed to provide the putative class members with compliant meal periods and constituted a predominant question appropriately resolved on a class-wide basis. Having determined the rounding time and meal period claims appropriate for class certification, court also certified the plaintiff's derivatives claims in claiming that they, concluding that they too involved common questions of law and fact suitable for certification. Thanks, Brandon. Another key example of a PAGA ruling from last year um, occurred in a case called Estrada versus Royalty Carpet Mills. Uh, plaintiffs in that case were a group of hourly workers at the defendant's carpet manufacturing facilities. They brought claims based primarily on allegations that they were not provided appropriate meal and rest breaks. Um, following a bench trial and an appeal, the California Appellate Court addressed several issues. Um, the two key issues were, one, the defendant's policy of requiring workers to stay on the premises during paid meal breaks, and two, the trial court's striking of the PAGA claims based on manageability concerns. Regarding the meal break question, the defendant in that case had a policy of paying workers regular wages during meal periods, but it did not give them premium pay for having to remain on the premises. The defendants in that case argued that the on-premises meal policy was lawful because the employees were in fact relieved of duty and paid wages during the meal period. 
Um, the Court of Appeal unfortunately disagreed with that argument. It opined that the employer had to afford the employees an uninterrupted half-hour period in which they were relieved of any duty um, and any employer control and were free to come and go as they please. And if the employer did not provide the employee with that, with that kind of a compliant meal period, then the employer had to provide the employee with the premium pay um, for that violation. And turning um, to the court's dismissal of the representative PAGA meal period claim then due to unmanageability, uh, which is probably an even more crucial part of the decision, the Court of Appeal addressed the question of whether PAGA has a manageability requirement similar to a Rule 23 class action. Um, and unfortunately, the Court of Appeal stated that a representative action under PAGA is not a class action. Um, but rather an administrative law enforcement action where the legislative purpose is to augment the limited enforcement capacity or capability of the LWDA. Um, and unfortunately, then the court went on to hold that manageability concerns are not a problem, not a hurdle to those types of actions. The court reasoned that um, the law is there essentially to empower employees to enforce the labor code as representatives of the agency, um, and that allowing courts to dismiss PAGA claims based on manageability concerns would actually interfere with PAGA's expressed design as a law enforcement mechanism and create this extra hurdle that really should not apply and does not apply in LWDA enforcement actions. And that's fantastic, really insightful analysis. Let's switch gears from California and focus on Florida. Florida was a state where the courts were disinclined to allow a plaintiff in one particular case to proceed on a class-wide basis on claims related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there have been a lot of class actions uh, that are still uh, on the court docket related to COVID-19. And this particular one, University of Florida Board of Trustees versus Rojas, the plaintiff was a graduate student, filed a class action asserting claims for breach of contract and unjust enrichment related to fees not refunded following the campus shutdown due to COVID-19. To support the breach of contract claim, the plaintiff filed a copy of the university's financial liability agreement, an estimate of the tuition and fees for the 2019-2020 academic year, and a plaintiff's tuition statement showing he paid his tuition and fees for the spring 2020 semester. The complaint also cited to various university web pages that contain general statements or descriptions of various camp campus amenities. The plaintiff, on behalf of a class of other students, asserted that these documents in the aggregate made up an express written contract between him and the university for specific on-campus resources and services during the relevant time period. However, the trial court dismissed the unjust enrichment claim, uh, but allowed the contract claim to move forward. The Florida Court of Appeal then disagreed. It ruled that the hodgepodge of documents did not constitute an express written contract sufficient to overcome sovereign immunity enjoyed by the university. The Court of Appeal further found that, li that the liability agreement merely conditioned a student's right to enroll upon the agreement to pay tuition and fees. And although the agreement mentioned, just mentioned the provision of educational services, that general phrase fell short, far, fall short fall, fell far short of conveying an express promise by the university to provide in-person 
or on-campus services to a student at any specific time. For these reasons, the Court of Appeal reversed and remanded to the trial court for entry of judgment in favor of the university on the basis that sovereign immunity barred the action. The last one I wanted to mention, uh, because it really was a novel situation, is a ruling from Massachusetts that addressed um, the situation where a named plaintiff dies before class certification. Uh, the case is called Kingara versus Secure Home Healthcare Inc. In that case, the plaintiff was a licensed practical nurse. She filed suit against the defendant, an in-home care provider for the elderly, and she alleged causes of action under state uh, under the State Wage Act, so minimum wage uh, violations and alleged violations over the overtime law. Um, the plaintiff, as I mentioned, died before her counsel had filed a motion for class certification. Um, thereafter, the plaintiff's counsel filed a motion to send notice to the putative class members informing them of the plaintiff's death and inviting them to join the action. The plaintiff's counsel also sought an order that would have required the defendant to identify the putative class members' names and addresses and to extend deadlines to allow the substitution of another class representative. So the trial court in that case granted the motions, but the defendant appealed. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court um, in ruling on the case explained that upon the client's death, the lawyer's authority to act for the client terminates. So because in that case, the plaintiff had not yet moved for class certification before the plaintiff died, the plaintiff's counsel lost authority and could not take further action absent a motion by the deceased, uh, by the deceased plaintiff's legal representative. So in addition, although um, the counsel for a certified class has a continuing obligation to each class member, Again, here, there was not a certified class, so the Court of Appeals concluded that the council did not have any authority to act for the putative class when no class certification was even yet pending, um, and council had not located the client's representative and had not identified any other putative class member to sub in as a class representative. Very interesting ruling, Jen. Uh, it's not often that uh, your plaintiff in the class Action is going to pass away during the, the litigation, but definitely a good one for corporate counsel to note in the event that the situation does happen uh, to them in the future. Well, thanks so much, Brandon. Great insights and analysis. I know that these are only some of the cases that um, generated some really interesting rulings um, in 2022 across various state courts um, in the myriad types of class action litigation pending across the country. Um, two, 2023 is sure to give us some exciting rulings as well um, that we will look forward to blogging about and presenting in future um, installations of the Class Action Weekly Wire. Um, thanks everyone for joining us today. Um, great to have you here. Thanks, Jen.